Michael, I gotta say, I'm excited to have you on. Your name and your book comes up over and over again with guests on the show. When I mention it on LinkedIn, I've had multiple folks reached out and saying how excited they are and looking forward to this conversation. So welcome to the show. I'm going to kick this off with a quote from the book, one of my favorites, although it's difficult to pick a favorite. Joining a new company is akin to an organ transplant and you're the new organ. If you're not thoughtful in adapting to a new situation, you could end up being attacked by the organizational immune system and rejected. Rejected. Just a fascinating thought. So, Michael, where I'd like to begin is what inspired you to write the first 90 days? Sure. So, um, got to take you back to about 1999. Um, and I, I always like to say that I was in my late teens when I started uh, you know, studying leadership, which of course is a total lie, Adam, as you probably can tell. Um, and I was teaching at the Kennedy School of Government uh, at Harvard University. I was a negotiation specialist uh, in diplomacy, international trade. But I agreed one semester almost on a whim to teach a, a course on organizational change, public and private sector. And I invited somebody to come join the class. His name is Dan Champa. And he was a coach who worked with leaders in transition. And uh, we just got talking and, you know, I, it became obvious to me that um, there was really something there, right? There was, there was a fascinating topic that lots of people had written about leadership, lots of people had written about organizational change, but really nobody had written about beginning to enter an organization, get up the learning curve while simultaneously trying to make change happen, right? That conjunction of things. And that got pretty interesting. And so Dan and I talked and uh, I started doing a whole series of interviews and we wrote a book that um, called Right From The Start that, you know, in its time, I think sold probably about 50,000 copies, which for a business book, not bad, right? Um, and then I got going from there to start to work with Johnson & Johnson. Um, they approached me after the Right From The Start came out to start to work with their leaders uh, because they were having a lot of regrettable losses and people failing in transition. And so they wanted to do something about it. And they came to me and I, I said, sure. And we put together a program. And over the next kind of two, three years, I worked with leaders globally, taking new roles at J&J, mostly director, VP level kind of roles. And I just learned a ton, like a ton, a ton, a ton, because I'm talking to these people all the time. I'm in Asia, I'm in, you know, I'm in Latin America. And of course, you, you see the themes, right? You see the common struggles, you see the kind of uh, traps that people fall into. You also see what helps. Um, and I'll give you a real simple example, right? Which is one of the frameworks in the book is what I call the STARS model, right? For startup turnaround, accelerated growth, realignment, sustaining success. The basic idea is the way you organize your transition depends in part on what kind of situation or mix you're going into, right? You're gonna behave differently in a startup than a turnaround. Well, that just came exactly from these discussions because I, I was talking to these folks realizing and I'm immersed in these conversations with them that, you know, the situation matters, right? I mean, there's general principles, Adam, right? There's stuff you can apply, you know, get early wins. That's a great basic principle. But what an early win is and how you go about getting it depends pretty, you know, dramatically from situation to situation. And so it was a after a couple of years of that and refining the ideas and refining the frameworks and seeing them have an impact that I sat down and I wrote the first 90 days. And the first 90 days, you know, I, I like to describe myself as the accidental guru. 
Adam, because I, I didn't know I was gonna, it was gonna take off, right? I didn't know it was gonna hit a wave. I didn't know, you know, it would have the impact it, it had, and, but it did, right? It took off and, and uh, I went, you know, not exactly overnight, but within a relatively short period of time from being Mr. Negotiation to being Mr. Transition. Uh, not that I have any regrets, right? Because the first 90 days is sold a couple million copies and it remains a book that people find useful, which is incredibly gratifying, right? For that to be the case. I know it's a long answer to your question, but that's the, that was the launch pad as it were. It's a fascinating story. Accidental guru. I, I, I love it. And, and what I find fascinating in your book, there's a lot of frameworks, there's a lot of methodology and systems, but there's also a lot of common sense. Um, and what we find over and over again, common sense isn't common action. So organizations are spending extraordinary resources in recruiting. It's a beautiful journey. And um, then the jokes begin, right? We were recruiting you yesterday. Welcome aboard. Right? Welcome aboard. And, and now let's see how you perform. Um, and with your book and your process, I, I think you're going to be able to make some of those jokes uh, go away. So, so Michael, he, here's my next question. And we'll follow the pattern as we think about the future of people initiatives. If you were speaking to to a CEO, right, and you're talking about onboarding and its importance, and of course at the CEO level they're focused on key metrics, critical goals, boards, st- 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 shareholders, perhaps government is involved in, in certain regulations. Why should they care? What are the, some of the biggest goals in the organization that they can influence by really adapting these methodologies? So reducing rates of derailment. It's the rates for new leaders coming in from the outside are still higher than they should be. Coming in, you just mentioned the organ transplant um, metaphor, and it's really the case, right, that, that organizations can reject otherwise good people if they don't do the right things, right? I mean, I, if you continue the metaphor, Adam, it's kind of like, how do you fool the immune system? You know, how do you, how do you get in there and, you know, begin to really embed yourself in the place without triggering, you know, that reaction. And I used to joke, you know, you, you do the wrong things, antibodies are secreted and killer T cells clump around you. And ultimately you're either digested or expelled from the organism. Like it's really is a biological process. So I guess I'd point first and foremost to that. You've spent a lot of time, a lot of money going out and finding great talent you know, and your expenditure is substantial, the stakes are high, the opportunity cost of a person not leading a business effectively can be immense. And then you kind of like sink or swim, right? Goodbye, thanks for the memories, you know, we'll check in in 18 months and see if you're still with us, you know. But it's not at all uncommon for leaders to leave at around the 12 to 18 month mark. Um, And that's sometimes that's just, you know, mutually agreed that that's the right thing to do. We made a hiring mistake, but often it's regrettable. Adam, you don't really want that to happen, which points us to a second thing, right? So if derailment reduction is one, retention is another. There's really good evidence that if you do a good job of welcoming someone into your organization and helping them successfully integrate, that they're going to stay longer, right? And, and you're going to retain that key, that key talent. And then I guess the third thing I would say is time to performance. You know, the research we've done you know, and I did some research with Egon Zender a few years ago. If you do the right work here, you can you can accelerate time to perf- uh, performance by 50%. What I'd like to do is uh, 
this idea of time to performance. And, and I was fascinated reading that in your book. Um, and when I asked the question of what are the business goals that could be influenced by adapting these methodologies, where my mind goes, the question of performance, which is every CEO's key metric, are mostly, not all, mostly about activating and sustaining change within their people to improve performance. Revenue, customer service, you name the metric. So, Michael, would it be reasonable to assume by by taking on a, a new way of thinking about onboarding, you can improve top line, bottom line, name a metric? So, well, so let me step back from the question slightly and then I'll get to your question, right, which is, you know, the first 90 days, the methodology and the book is written for individual leaders. You know, I'm going to help Adam take charge in his new role, right? And you're going to be, Adam, fantastically successful if you follow the basic, you know, principles. But the real power comes if you apply this at the level of the organization and you focus on accelerating everybody taking new roles, which we've done in some clients. And that's not just the people onboarding, it's people making internal moves. Some of those internal moves can be harder than onboarding. Sometimes they can be a lot like onboarding because you're going to a different part of the organization with a different culture. And so, you know, my basic message around this is this is, this is a, uh, a system, right? It's a system for accelerating everybody in the organization. It's a common language. It's a set of tools. And if you can instill it into the organization, and let's assume you can get everyone who makes a transition to, to performance 10% more, which I think is conservative. I think you can do better than that. And you magnify that across the entire organization. And you think about you know, the opportunity cost of lost time in moving businesses. You think about agility. You know, it, the, the business case is ridiculously easy to make when you, when you do it. Am I getting at your point? Yeah, absolutely. There is a game changing when we think about performance. So, Michael, where I'd, where I'd like to go next is where a lot of my conversations are, are, I wouldn't say stalling, but we begin to wonder about a future state. The question is, who owns this thing, right? You mentioned it's for leaders, right? Uh, I've spoken to chief learning officers. I've spoken to chief culture. There is a, the CEOs. What are you seeing? Is there any consensus for who should own this type of a people initiative inside organization? Oh, Adam, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> it's such a good question, right? And let's, let's narrow the focus a little bit just to onboarding <clears throat> because I think it's quite illustrative of the problem, right? So who should own onboarding? Should it be talent acquisition because they're out acquiring the talent? And shouldn't they be the ones that then are responsible for integrating people? Should it be learning and development? Because, you know, it's really about learning and developing people once they've been acquired, right? Should it be, uh, you know, business unit HR because they're on the front lines of this whole thing and, and they've got a big incentive? Should it be the leadership, the hiring manager that they're reporting to because who has a bigger stake? And, you know, it, it tends to fall through the cracks of that ambiguity, right? Um, for, for just onboarding, <clears throat> I think you need to have really high-level support at the, at the unit level from operating leaders and HR. I think that probably the best place to put it, if it's just onboarding, is with talent acquisition. 
but they often struggle with that because they're often folks that have done talent acquisition, right? They're search people, right? And the notion of taking on onboarding can be difficult. Um, the next best thing is to have L&D uh, overseeing it, you know, and, and there sometimes the real value is in having the right, putting in place the right processes and systems and tools rather than actively doing it. Um, but it's a complicated question, right? I mean, I, I'll just go back to J&J. I mean, we do a lot of, we help a lot of leaders at Johnson & Johnson today take new roles and they have a, a part of their corporate organization, their learning and development and talent management organization that handles executive coaching. And that's where transition coaching resides. And they do a terrific job. They do a terrific job. Um, they also have a program that they give three times a year for newly hired or newly promoted VPs that I actually am, am a, a small part in. But, you know, if you don't localize it, it's not going to happen. It just doesn't happen. And I think this it helps explain why, even though there has been a ton, a ton, a ton of research about the value of onboarding, there's still far too many companies that do it, that just don't do a good job, right? Because there's not a natural single home for this. But we also know that anything that you syndicate responsibility for, the risk is it not it doesn't get done at all, you know? And you nailed it there that this idea of if it doesn't reside within the business unit, I just call it that for, for the ter to combine the terms operational, you know, relevant to your everyday, but it doesn't reside in business unit, resides somewhere else. You have a check the box. It, it's not competing for attention. It's not native. It's not holistic to the employee experience. And now how do you reconcile that to the employee value proposition, which is a whole other can of worms who owns that. And I've had responses ranging uh, 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 from we should break up L&D from being centralized and put them inside business units. L&D in its current form should go away. It should be incorporated inside business units as something else that is not just a partner to, but native in in the business units. Um, so, so Michael, if you don't mind, where I'd like, so what, what I'd like to, what I, where I'd like to go next is as we think about onboarding, uh, I, I think it's important for any people initiative for us to reflect on the current mindset in the workplace. And what I keep hearing over and over again, and I'd like your, your point of view, attention spent shorter than ever, stress higher than ever, avalanche of notifications. There is no, um, person, human onboarding who says, can I have another app? Can I have another notification? Everyone everywhere is reaching their limits of avalanche of information and are continuously climbing further up. What are you hearing and seeing? Exhaustion. You know, I, I think you've nailed it. I, I not another organization. I did a, what's called a masterclass recently with a you know, senior audience, and uh, I, I dared to ask the question, how many of you, it was a poll, right? Poll everywhere kind of thing uh, online. How many of you, or to what extent do you, would you describe yourself as exhausted, right? And one to five scale, average answer four, right? Lots of people in the, in the five, right? Sort of imagine a bell curve centered on four. <laughs> And that's where people are, Adam. They're exhausted, right? And and why are they exhausted? Because there's been, you know, the 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 
large-scale you know, trauma right, of the pandemic. There's been shifting your life into fully virtual mode and now having to shift it back again. There's extraordinary turbulence in the political, social, economic environments, right? Um, technology, right? Accelerating. I mean, there's, there's shock after shock after shock, right? That are, that's hitting people now. And I don't see any particular prospect that that's going to get better, you know, anytime soon, right? And so, I mean, I think the question that you're asking, and it's a profound question is, how do we continue to manage our energy and, and be productive, given that this is the world, this is the new world we're living in, right? And I think every leader needs to focus on that question. It's a question of energy. It's a question of how do you manage your energy? I, I teach an executive program. I'm co-director of an executive program at IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland. And the whole first week of the program is what we call the inner leader, right? And a lot of it is really about how do you kind of ground yourself in the midst of uncertainty and ambiguity? How do you be systematic about managing your energy? How do you demonstrate the right presence for your people? You know, and it's, it's become just so terribly important. You know, uh, resilience, obviously. Um, emotional agility is a big piece of what we do, right? The ability to you know, manage your emotions, manage your reactions to things because we're very triggered these days, right? We spend a lot of time in triggered mode and that's not a good place to be for, you know, at all, right? Even from a physical and physiological and health point of view, it's not a good place to be. So, yeah, no, it's a, and, you know, and, and, I, and I worry, I don't want to take us down a, a road you don't want to go down, but what the future holds, Adam, right? You know, I... If you told me that in my lifetime I, we'd be talking seriously about whether nuclear weapons will be used, I would have said, no way, right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember as a young child the Cuban Missile Crisis and my, my parents stockpiling food and doing duck and cover drills, right? But I think we thought that was all gone, you know, that crazy environment of violence and disruption and destruction, and yet here we are, you know? Um, and I guess I wonder, just, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, about the kinds of leaders we're going to need to help us through these times, you know? Un unfathomable dangers, right, that, that, are, that are more real now than ever. And, and, and you just made it real conversation. You talked about a real topic. And I think when we think about the mindset of folks inside organizations, we got to get to this level of how real their lives are, are, you know, stressed and anxious and what's impacting them. But Michael, where I'd like to go next, if you don't mind, is to really dare to dream a little about the future of people initiatives. Because you, l let's assume you and I are right, uh, it's not going to get better. Uh, let's hope it doesn't get worse, but it's not going to get better. So now when we think about how do we make people initiatives more effective, and we dream about that state. Often this conversation takes us down the rabbit hole a bit of, well, what can we learn from marketing? Marketing is effective, gets people's attention, right? It's relevant, it's personalized. It goes down the rabbit hole of technology and data. What do we know about the employee experience and the context of that experience? So Michael, when I, how would you answer the question, how do we dream about a future state where people initiatives are more effective than they are today, do, or dare I say, are effective. 
So great question. Um, look, you know, I, I have a dear friend who, who I think you might really enjoy meeting for the program for your podcast. His name's Nicholas Yanni, and he's just written a book called The Leader is Healer. He also is someone who appears in my, does a big chunk of my executive program. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase a bit of what he would say, right? Which is, we are caught in the mode of doing, not being, right? In the endless hamster wheel of production and productivity without being connected to our fundamental selves, being alienated, in fact, from our fundamental selves. We bring that into our teams. So our teams don't really talk about what matters. It's not permissible to have conversations about we are afraid. We don't know, right? It's not permissible to bring emotions to the table. And I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing to a degree Nicholas's work because I think it's very, it's very powerful. And I think that until we are willing to reorient ourselves to the reality that people are exhausted and they need to be able to talk about it, that people are afraid and they need reassurance, right? That there's a whole emotional substrate of things going on here that are being suppressed and in the suppression are highly dysfunctional for what's going on. Now, you know, I'd love to tell you I have a, an answer for how to do that, right? I mean, the way we do it in the program is, you know, sort of leader by leader, as it were, right? And I think we're reasonably successful in having people come out of the program very different than they walked in. Um, but how do you replicate that across the environment within which we're operating? You know? And I, I, don't, I wouldn't pretend to tell you I have an easy answer for how to do that. I think I know what needs to happen, but how, right? How do we get the message across to you know, leaders that they need to pay a lot more attention to the emotional dimension of leadership? And that's not just emotional intelligence, right? It, it's, it's literally being able to help guide your teams through very turbulent times, through very choppy waters, and maintain a container of, of safety. You know, sometimes the, the term is secure base that's used in psychology, right? How do you do that as a leader, right? It's the only answer I've been able to come up with, that, and, uh, and I don't pretend it's an easy one to, to, to implement, yeah. right? And then these are really, really hard questions, which, which is why the title of every episode is, is a question, not an answer we're exploring. And what you described is this cognitive dissonance we have created between our personal and professional worlds. Absolutely. How do we break through that? Uh, Michael, the way that, I, way that I've been thinking about it is how do we meet them where they are? How do we understand better? their employee experience. I mean, let's be really granular, right? You're a manager. And um, we're asking, we're suggesting that the way you change your team's dynamic is start with yourself, right? Become the change you want to see in the world. And we talk about it during an amazing coaching or workshop one-on-one where they're inspired, off the charts inspired, right? And that lasts for most a whopping day two days, right? Maybe a little bit is back there in the subconscious, but then you go through days and weeks of insanity, right? Meetings, kids sick, you know, you're running around and you, you mean well, you, you want to be the change, but, but you forgot, 
So I've, I've been wondering, how do we in the future address that? How do we look at their calendars? How do we anticipate it? How do we say, well, look, you've been in five meetings. You've been running nonstop. This is a good moment to do X. Or look, you have a team member with whom you haven't connected with for two weeks. How does it feel? What's happening in their mind if for two weeks there's been no contact with the manager, knowing our negative Tetris that's running in the background, we're probably saying I'm going to get canned, right? This is, and, and then you don't send a, a, a message saying let's meet. Oh my goodness, let's meet tomorrow. They're not sleeping that night, right? How do we, how do we look at data? And Michael, tell me if you haven't gone there yet or, or dream with me for a bit. No, no, this is this is super important question, Adam. And I think we have gone there to a degree, right? So it's funny you say this because, um, and I'll go to the program that I'm co-director of uh, at IMD called Transition to Business Leadership. And we do the first two weeks on the inner leader and the team leader, right? With the inner leader piece being the piece we, we talked about. And on the final day, we spend a fair amount of time talking about how hard it's going to be to go back and implement this stuff, right? And the kinds of things we talk about are, you know, the curve of behavior change and making sure that you have a clear idea of what progress is and progress can be incremental to anticipate that the first week or two back is just going to feel like you're back right where you were. Right. I just I just finished actually sending out at the end of their first week back a, a request for a reflection about what did that first week feel like. Right. And, and, and then a message saying, OK, you know, it's not surprising you felt like that for your first week back. You had a lot of catch up to do. How are you going to recycle yourself back to focusing on some of these things? I've come to believe that, you know, the power well, What's critical is not to try and take on too much, right? There's a tendency to say, I'm going to transmute myself into gold tomorrow, right? I, you know, sure, I'm pewter today, but tomorrow I shall be gold. And I will work out, I shall meditate. I, and we, we meditate throughout the program, by the way, right? So that's a, I mean, we try to get people in. But we do five minutes, Adam, every day, five. Because no one's going to go home and do 15, never mind half an hour, right? Same with exercise. We teach, we teach really simple little exercise routines that you can do in a few minutes when you have a break, right? I've become a big believer that you, unless you're willing to incrementalize it and, and, and contextualize it, contextualize what progress is, it's not going to happen, right? Because it's, you're, you're up against the, a huge set of forces that are pushing you and shaping you to continue to be what you were, right? And you're not gonna do, you're not gonna defeat those forces by, you know, blunt instruments, yeah? And again, I think it's, you know, it's not a, a great answer, but, you know, I, I, I talk to people a lot about the practice of micro-presence, right? The breath before you answer the phone, right? The pause before you, you know, when you sit down in a meeting, just little things, right, that make a, make a difference. You pointed out one that I think is really important, right? The, the simple gesture of asking someone, how are you? And actually looking like you mean it. You know, we ask people all the time, how, hey, Adam, how are you? But we don't really care. And we're not really expecting an answer, right? And I think when, when your people feel like you're present with them, 
That's powerful, right? It's extremely powerful. And it doesn't take much work to do that. And I think the best leaders are, are capable of it. So, you know, and we, we structure that program so they come back for a second two weeks. And a big chunk of what we do in the first day is what happened? What made it hard? What worked? What didn't, right? We'd go back to meditating every day for another two weeks. Trying to instill some habits, because so much of this is about habits, right? We draw on things like, you know, James Clear's Atomic Habits work, right? As a way to begin to instill new practices, because it's a practice. We go to archery and, li and listen to a world-class archer talk about self-talk, right? About, you know, about training world-class athletes and how you learn to talk to yourself in the right ways. It's a lot of small pieces that in the end, I think, can have a huge, a huge impact. Small things that have profound impact. You know, you mentioned even creating the space. You know, Viktor Frankl, Men's Search for Meaning. Right between your reaction, uh, between the, uh, the stimuli and your reaction lies the, the opportunity to create the space. In that space is your, your freedom, right? I saw, I saw, by the way, in your bio that that was one of the books that inspired you. Yeah. It's a profoundly yeah. important book. It's not an easy book, but it's a profoundly important book. My 16-year-old son is now reading it. I, I told him it's, that's a must-read. Uh, there was that book. Uh, Simon Sinek actually interviewed him, had the opportunity to interview him start with why yeah so so i mean you're getting in again to really i think very fertile territory right because i think that you know I, I i talk a little bit sometimes about leader as sense maker and storyteller you know that part of the role of the leader is helping your people make sense of what's going on contextualize what's going on and part of it is also helping them understand the story of which they are a part you know and that sense-making, I'm not sure you ever, if you ever heard that term before, it goes back a long way, but that sense-making and storytelling, I think, becomes ever more important as you get to higher, higher levels of leadership. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Michael, my, my parting question for you and the folks that are listening, our, our audience, are, are really the, those that are courageous to think about how they can create change. Most are their biggest challenge is to gain internal alignment with executive teams. How do you get executives to think differently, given the times that we're in? So, so Michael, what, what what advice would you give them for for their journey to continue or to accelerate their journey, in order for them to, you know, improve their organizations? So, so just just want to make sure I'm clear on on who we're talking about, right? Are these leaders trying to make change in their organizations but needing organizational support at higher levels adam exactly that's exactly right think yeah. about lnd change management folks that are saying hey there's a better way we see it we love michael's work we love to think about future people initiatives differently how do we now convince our executive teams i think it's funny it's a great question and i think it to me it's a sub case of the broader issue of how do you get really good at stakeholder management because basically what you're describing is a, a, a variation on stakeholder management, right? And for me, a, a lot of it starts with how do I build the alliance, you know? And, and the alliance is, is based on things we both need to accomplish or ways I can help you that you can help me, right? So as for senior executives, you know, I, I always say you have to understand what their agenda is and how you fit into that agenda and how you can advance that agenda, right? Because too many people, they start at them with, here's what I want, here's what I need. Well, 
tell me back to start with why. Why should I care? Right? I mean, the first reflex for most people is what's in it for me? How does this help me make my numbers, make my objectives, get my next promotion, right? And I think I, for me, a lot of this work came out of the, the stuff I did in international diplomacy early in my career, right? Where thinking like a diplomat, diplomats instinctively think in terms of alliances. They think about agendas politically, right? They think about alignments and how do we, we craft the, the larger coalition around those alignments. It, it's, it's a way of thinking that's, I think, really, really valuable, Right in the in the context of the work that you're you're talking about, absolutely, Michael. That that was amazing, and and what an amazing conversation. I feel like I can go on for hours, but I want to be super respectful of your time, and just want to say a huge thank you from me and from our audience for for taking the time. Hey, really happy to be it. Enjoyed the conversation too, Adam. Awesome, Michael. Thank you. Over now. <laughs>